We are here again, right live. I'm sorry, we're running a few minutes behind, but some technical duties, and we'll talk about that in a moment with Wi-Fi. But thankfully, we got past all that. And of course, I want you all to do, you know, when you're doing your calisthenics, share the show. Share the show. Share. Come on, share the show because we are one of the best shows that harness everyone's history. Okay. And it's important that people know this show is going on. And this has become, I believe, it's become a benchmark for you to reference people's lives in the music industry. So as you notice, we're a little bit darker. We're going to nightclub level, bringing it down. I put the lights down, keeping it very, some nights, well, I should say some days, I like to have it where I'm hanging out in a club. So, and there's a reason why I wanted to make it feel like a club because this man is nightclubbing business in every sense of the word. Well, welcome to True House Stories. I'm Lenny Fontana coming out of New York City. And we are now in our third year, strong working towards our fourth with some diabolical great interviews. And people are discovering us left, right, and center each and every week as is we are just beginning over and over. You know, if you watch the show, you'll see each show is a behind the music of a each person's life that we've had on and having on in future and in past tense. The beautiful thing about this program is we dig deep and we learn about the history of people because a lot of times you will see people doing their, their job, performing, singing, dancing, DJing, producing, but you really don't know them until you hear their words and the struggles or the goals they've made. You know, nobody really truly understands what it takes to be that person unless you're in their shoes. And the wonderful thing about True House Stories is we've been able to bring that out each and every week. So this man from the UK transported himself to the Los Angeles area. Along the way, Grammy nominator, right there, Mark Lewis, Mark London Lewis, Grammy nominated, right? Done so much in the electronic music world. Played from everyone, from Tony Humphreys to Carl Cox, Eric Murillo, may he rest in peace, Danny Teneglia. I've worked with him over the years. Um, great DJ. Fantastic entertainer, excellent producers, got great ears, knows the game. He's been doing it since 1988 and hasn't missed the beat. So for no longer ado, I'm not going to hold it back any longer. We're going to bring him right up to the stage, live from Vegas. <laughs> Viva Las Vegas, Mr. Mark London. Greetings, everybody from Nevada. It seems that uh, I can't get away from this place. Uh, just last week, 
uh, I was at Burning Man, and uh, you know, of course, you know, I made international uh, news with the the flood and the storm and people getting trapped there. Some people saw the Diplo and Chris Rock uh, escaping on foot. Uh, I was there with Cole Cox and uh, many others uh, at the playground camp. And well, you know, at Black Rock, uh, where they do Burning Man, is actually about seven hours away from here. It's about that for a drive. And it's the third largest city in Nevada for one week with 80,000 people. But we are in the, the city of dreams in Las Vegas. And uh, yeah, it's good to be here, Lenny. I've got what you've been looking for. <laughs> yes, and I'm so glad you've been able to. We've actually had you on an earlier day, but we changed it. Yeah. And I'm glad we did. I'm glad we did. Yeah, I'm glad we could make it happen. And uh, greetings from the green room. And uh, it's great to be here. Lots to talk about uh, the whole legacy of music. And but, was... but hang on. You, you know, some people don't really know about that thing that happened in Burning Man. What is, you know, give us the detailed eyewitness news report because you were right there. Yeah, this is the rave reporter right here. Uh, so uh, I arrived on Wednesday morning. I, this is my seventh burn. And uh, I remember taking, uh, I remember going there in 2002. We were there, we were invited uh, from San Francisco, uh, Sid Gris uh, from Opelon Temple. And we was actually there uh, celebrating Paul Oakenfold's birthday party. And uh, we were only there for 14 hours. And now, if it, anyone that's been at Burning Man or even think about it, you think to yourself, how could I even be there for 14 hours? But anyway, we were on tour. We were there. And then many years later on, uh, I was speaking to Carl and uh, said, you know, we, we should all go to Burning Man. He had a, an eccentric billionaire friend called Tandy. Uh, and uh, he's, Tandy said to Cole, he said, you've played every party around the world, but you've never played a party until you've played Burning Man. And uh, that was the catalyst for Cole saying, okay, let's do it. Uh, there was me, James, and Ian, his, his tour manager, and we, we rented an RV uh, from Las Vegas, and we drove there. And once again, we was invited to work with Sid for Hopland Temple. Uh, hold on a second. Breaking uh, news. Yeah, I mean, anyway, so uh, we were there uh, and Cole loved it so much uh, that we went back for a second year, uh, 2008. And many years later on, Cole's like, you know, the one thing that a lot of people have to understand about Burning Man, nobody gets paid. No entertainer gets paid. It, what, what you bring in is what you bring out. And everybody makes this pilgrimage to this spiritual and artistic Mad Max landscape. And, uh, and over the years, Cole built his own camp with, uh, with the help of James and, and uh, Russell uh, and Charlie from Ultra uh, came in later on and they built this camp called Playground. David Corso, uh, also from Heinken and Red Bull and many of us from San Francisco, uh, like Michael, uh, Fibish and stuff, uh, all got together and built this most amazing camp. And uh, it morphed over many, many years. and. The, the sound system is is amazing and uh, you know throughout the sun from Sunday to Sunday uh, they burn the, the man on Saturday and then they do a, uh, a temple burn on Sunday and uh, you know 
after the man burns, usually nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, there's a great big party. Uh, Cole's party is very significant, probably like 5,000 people and all the art cars come around it and the most amazing sound system and fire and laser and stuff. But it is at the mercy of mother nature because if a dust storm comes in, it could last an hour, could last three hours and it hinders uh, the, the actual fire and the celebration of the ritual of the man burning and temple burning. Well, this year uh, we were greeted by uh, the second flood within two weeks and it rains kind of like Friday at dusk, about six o'clock and it was probably 21 inches in one day. Uh, the thing with the Burning Man, it, it, it's the, they call it the plier, which is a dry lake bed. And the thing with uh, the, the lake bed being clay, uh, it's got very high alkaline content. So when it rains in clay, different than mud or sand, it turns into mud where you could put your foot in it and it would pretty much take the boot off your shoe. Uh, take a shoe off your foot. So, uh, and this made it very messy. And obviously, you know, with the production of some of these camps, you I mean you're dealing with high uh, voltage generators to be able to power. Because don't forget, there's no electricity. There's nothing in BlackRock. Everything needs to be brought in. So to power lasers and sound and uh, and generators and showers and lights and even to charge your phone and stay, uh, you know, stay at a camp. Everything gets electricity. So, uh, and I think one person did actually die, uh, don't quote me on this, from uh, walking bare feet in, you know, in the mud, which was an easier way to get around and got electrocuted, I don't know, or even if he didn't die, that, that did happen. So, uh, and then it makes things messy. So it kind of closed down a lot of the, the, the big camps uh, or closed down a lot of the parties. And then there was the exodus of, you know, people like, you know, the Diplos waiting, you know, trying to get the gig on the, on the Saturday that had to walk out because no vehicles could move, could only get stuck. You couldn't take health in the RV because just the, the weight of the RV, no planes could, could land, uh, you know, into the uh, facility. Uh, you know, there's no helicopters or anything. So everything came to a halt. But as true burners, uh, you know, uh, burner spirit, everybody, you know, got together, made sure everybody, you know, was safe and, uh, you know, got you know, food and water and, and, and shelter and stuff like that. But that's a big undertaking, seeing that some people... Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. You've got 70-plus you know, thousand people all dampened under the, under the weather conditions. Plus, you know, a lot, the, this year there were 60% of the uh, first time burners. So they had never experienced nature like that or experiencing the man or the temple burning. So that was meant to happen. Man burns on Saturday, temple burns on Sunday. That's been going on for over 25 years. And uh, the man didn't burn till Monday. And Temple didn't burn until Tuesday, and we were at the mercy of uh, the weather. I was actually trying to escape on Sunday, because I was like, yeah, I've seen many men burn, but let's do it. And I got, my car was, uh, yeah, my girl's car that I drove, it said she'd be this front wheel drive, got stuck in the mud, wasn't going anywhere. And, uh, but luckily I got out there on, on Monday, on a nice sunny day, the sun came in dried up a lot of stuff and you know you're in the desert so it could get 125 degrees 
but it could drop down to 40 degrees or 35 degrees. It's just that fluctuation of, of weather and plus the wide out of the dust storms. There's all this stuff that takes place and it's pretty, you know, pretty unique. As I said, just like Mad Max. <laughs> yeah, because I, guess I wanted you to, because a lot of people who watch this show have never ventured out to that direction. And hearing this from your perspective is pretty cool because you've experienced it so much out there, you know? Yeah, but you know what you the beauty of it of being a DJ uh, and uh, and one of being DJs uh, that are at camps, you get to play these long sets or you get to play music that is really synonymous to the backdrop of uh, your environment. So it's, you know, you're not, you know, like usually you're programmed to, you're gonna play an hour at a club or two hours, you pretty much know what you're gonna do, uh, you know, your musical style while you've been booked. But there you can play anything because of just, uh, you know, just the nature of people's up being, you know, open-minded and, you know, it's a very, you know, psychedelic, you know, light experience. It's uh, the electrical light parade for adults. There's <laughs> a going on and lights and costumes and the fashion and the elements. And so it makes it really, uh, you know, a, 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 you know a, a release for music. Plus, there are these art cards that have the most amazing sound systems. There's one... Uh, art cart that is a million dollar art cart called uh, Mayan Warrior. Laser sound system, maybe people are familiar with Robot Heart. Uh, you know, you've got, uh, you know, art carts, shapes of dragons and boats and galleons with, you know, function one sound systems on there and, you know, very, very elaborate and it's become a very expensive, uh, you know, I mean, you've got billionaires that are out there like Guy, Guy Libertine from Cirque du Soleil that has player alchemy that spent 1.5 million on his pyramid. Uh, you know, so sound systems and DJs from all around the world, uh, you know, that, that get to play. And, you know, I mean, occasionally someone says, oh, I, I heard Bert Bono was there, but you would never know if he was there because... You know, not like you run into him when you could do and watch, you know, watch a sunrise or a sunset. And uh, everybody welcomes everybody into their camp with, uh, you know, you can't buy anything there. The only thing you can buy is ice. <laughs> you used to be able to buy coffee, but you can only buy ice. So uh, it's pretty uh, interesting. So everybody brings So basically, when you come with your RV, you got to come prepare with food and everything for a few food, food, drinks, and, and, and people do actually come with gifts, uh, you know, because people travel from all around the world. And the whole uh, ethos of Burning Man is to be, I mean, there's this uh, um, notion, uh, interesting notion, everybody talks about this bartering system. You know, I'll give you a toilet roll for your, for a back rub. That doesn't exist. Everybody gives generously without wanting to receive anything back. So people make, uh, you know, make jewelry and, and, and clothes specifically to meet other people and share in that experience of giving, which was Larry Harvey's uh, 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 legacy and uh, ethos that, uh, you know, he grew up in an orphanage, which I, this, and I, just when you think you've seen it all or heard it all about Burning Man, every year is another a crescendo of the learning experience and uh, the uh, Larry that created uh, uh, Burning Man, who was the original founding forefather, uh, passed away a couple of years ago. Somebody was telling me this year that, uh, you know, Larry and his brother grew up in an orphanage 
and they always cared about the other, uh, you know, the other friends uh, and, and other orphans that they would give without wanting to receive, if it meant, you know, a meal and stuff like that. So that became uh, the, uh, uh, the underlining uh, love of, of, of Burning Man. Some people don't know this, and I didn't know that. So I just thought it was, you know, they burned the man in San Francisco that was, uh, you know, uh, 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 a throwback to uh, not being in original, you know, society and, uh, you know, under the constraints of any, you know, government, government rule. So, you know, like we, we learn as we, we go along. So, yeah, Burning Man, that is something to uh, want to uh, tick off the, the bucket list for sure. I will be, I hope to someday make it. I hope to someday make it. I've never been out there to do Burning Man, but I've heard some yeah. before. Well, yeah. And your music, uh, you know, is, uh, you know, probably Grace DJs that have played it on the prior, and we will we will work on that to make that happen for, uh, for next year. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, let's get right into you. Thank you for the eyewitness report. And now we need to hear about your life, of course. And everybody that's graced the show has same question asked, and I'll ask it the same to you, and then I'm going to let you take over because no one paints a picture better than you telling the story. How does music find young Mark Lewis before he became Mark London Lewis? Well, the first thing is definitely my dad, Stanley Lewis. Um, my dad would play music you know, at the weekends, uh, records, everything from jazz, from Jimmy Smith on Blue Note to Marvin Gaye or Frida Payne or Motown or uh, Al Green. And uh, there was always music in the household, uh, especially at the weekend. Uh, my mum was very happy, uh, you know, when music was playing and my dad would play this music. And we used to have this old gramophone uh, uh, record player that was part radio, part uh, turntable. And on there, uh, you used to stack the records up. You could put, there was a 78, this is how old it was, there was a 78 speed, 45 and 33. And you could stack up a bunch of 45s and it would play a bit like a jukebox, you know? Or you'd actually have to put the needle on the record. And uh, so dad would play music, uh, God bless him. And, uh, you know, me and my sister would dance around to hear music to my sisters. and. And then one year, I, I remember being about seven or eight, my sister had a birthday party. And uh, well, I have this picture, I, I don't know where it is, I've been looking for it for, you know, for the autobiography and stuff or for, for the memoir. And uh, I'd play this music. Uh, but growing up, we, you know, we had a, a, a music show called Top of the Pops. And it was a lot of modern music that was, you know, was taking place that, you know, was into from, you know, anything could be, you know, from, from disco to, uh, you know, Bill Haley or, or Shawadi Wadi or, you know, it, it could have been or to Queen. And, uh, you know, with some of my pocket money, I would go and buy select records that, you know, that I was into, that I was listening to on the radio or being influenced on top of the pops. And, uh, you know, I just had a birthday party and that's my first recollection of, uh, you know, DJing or being a music selector for her birthday party. And I've got some pictures somewhere, somehow. And uh, so from my dad to 
to, to playing music and the area that we lived in, in, in South London, would later uh, bring me to, uh, you know, get introduced and become this uh, growing friendship and brotherhood with, with Carl and uh and djs like ray lock and trevor fung and paul confold and where we you know we was all in a, a stunt throat of you know grow, growing up and i remember Cole playing my 18th birthday party in my back garden Cole <laughs> sometimes will mention it to when we're in a, a group setting and we're just talking about our friendship of uh, you know you know spanning back you know over 45 years you know, and uh, we all, you know, love music. We had so many friends back then, we, we could fill a coach and we would get in a, a coach and we would drive to, you know, case the weekends or all dayers and, you know, miles and miles away with our friends and build human pyramids and jump off the balconies and dance the night away and drink pints of beer. And we had this, uh, you know, amazing, group of friends and Cole just had his 60th birthday party last year uh, in, in the UK and we had one big reunion uh, I think Norman Jay played and Joel Peterson and uh, Incognito uh, performed and you know we just had you know all our friends getting together and shuffling and dancing and and, and, and living the spirit of you know of, of music what that binds us together and uh, this is this is our legacy and I'll tell you something, what a legacy when you say at a 60th birthday party, oh, Jamiro Choir was there and this and that. It's like, you know, not everybody gets a chance to have that kind of birthday party. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Well, Carl is now the, you know, the godfather of all DJs. And, you know, it, it was like, what a way to, to go out. You know, he's a couple of years older than me. I'm thinking I'm 60 next year. What am I going to do, you know, for my birthday? I did hint to Carl at Burning Man. I said, you know, you know, when I was 18, you played on the party. This is 60. Yeah, I mean, yours. yeah, we need you to help me again one more time. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if I'm going to be in the, do it in the UK or if I'm going to do it, you know, in California. But uh, yeah, that, that little uh, whisper is in his ear now. So, um, you know, I'll, he's coming out to Vegas, actually, uh, at the beginning of October for Art of the World. At, at, at the wind, so and in back in, in LA, so I'll keep mentioning it too, so we can get it on his schedule. But that man is sure busy. Attention, <laughs> attention, call Cox. Attention, yeah. call Cox. <laughs> need you to help. We need you to help Mark London's yeah. party. <laughs> and we can play. We can play records like the the, the tone arm. Yeah, with a with a real tone arm. Can be vinyl. <laughs> so at eighteen, I you know. You've come a long way, as they say. You know, there's a lot between 18 to now. Yes. And I understand what happened in the UK with funk and disco becoming electro and all that. So where does that take you in this whole journey? Because I know you've had a long stroke. Where did, and what year did you come into America to stay? Yeah. Well, you know, the funny thing is, you know, and it's interesting that you mentioned all these, you know, uh, facets of, of music. I remember, uh, you know, watching Top of the Pops and, and, and seeing the Sex Pistols, uh, uh, you know, doing Pretty Vacant and, you know, at growing up feeling pretty awkward as, as a, a kid being, you know, uh, you know, when my, when my mother 
uh, being a Jewish woman, married uh, my dad, being a, a black man in the 60s, it was really taboo, uh, and being Jewish as, as well. Uh, and, you know, there was, you know, was, there was some in, insecurities there. You know, I was a skinny kid with, a, with an afro, and I was trying to find my way with, you know, music and, uh, and just it, things in life in general. I mean, I had my friends, we, you know, we had the clubs, we had, had the music, but I remember when Pretty Vacant came on and I was just like, I'm Pretty Vacant, that music's speaking to me, right? But then later on, you know, I mean, I always had the disco and the soul and, you know, and, and, and all, all sorts of music. And I remember when uh, hip hop came into, into the fold, we would go to many concerts, you know, from James Brown to, uh, you know, to watching, you know, Slave or, uh, you know, or, or all, all sorts of bands. But I remember there was, <laughs> me and my friend Ray Lock, we went to the movies, we went to see a break dance. Uh, and I remember, like, at the end of the movie, people were body popping, you know, uh, you know by, the, by the screen. And then, you know, Run DMC came on to the, uh, into the fold. And uh, me and my friend Ray, we went up to see them in Covent Garden. They were doing some kind of like, uh, you know, a promo or, you know, some activation. And they were, you know, obviously sponsored by Adidas. And I remember got, we, they were at one place and then they announced that they were going to go to this store, to this Adidas store and do some signing. And me and Ray in rain, we, we, we found our way to the store. I remember Run DMC signing my sneakers, and I was telling somebody about that the other day. Go, you still got those sneakers with Run DMC? I go, now they're long gone. I think the ink run off of them in in the in the rain. We weren't really thinking about memorabilia and collecting things, uh, you know, at the time. Uh, and so, you know, and then you know, Paul was working, you know, for for Profile Records and was bringing, you know, uh, you know, hip hop artists, uh, or, you know, urban artists over to to the UK and. You know, he was, you know, running Spectrum and a good friend of mine that I was going to school with, um, uh, Ian Paul. Um, you know, we, we had this in our whole history of music. And at some point, we're doing, a re you know, when, when I left school, I always had dreams of, you know, being, you know, being in the advertising in the, in the art world and stuff and, you know, being, wanting to be art artistic in, 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 in such and many uh whispers later on found myself not working in that in that business and um a friend of mine introduced me uh as tony Pollicino, to introduced me to this this company and basically i was a forklift driver working in a warehouse and at 18 years old or being under 21 all you cared about was that you had a wage packet each week that you had enough money to go out with your friends and be able to buy pints, of, you know, be able to buy a drink and have this great time and get into a club. That was it. That's all we needed to do. But some told me there's something more. There's something more that's gonna, uh, you know, come into the uh, uh, into the fold. And, and I always wanted to come to America. I saw something with this DJ uh, that was traveling around America, and he was. Uh, him and his wife, they ended up in Daytona Beach for spring break. And as uh, this kid, seeing that lifestyle of kids, you know, you know, Daytona Beach, spring break, people hanging out in Jeeps, and, you know, this guy had sold his computer to be able to go to spring break. And I was like, hmm, that looks cool. But then at the same time, I was, uh, you know, me and my friend Jimmy Mason, just, you know, very good friends with Carl, 
I was really into uh, working out at the time because, you know, as I said, growing up as a kid and, and you know, your whole identity and stuff, you know, being this skinny, awkward, you know, awkward, awkward kid, I, I really found refuge in, in working out. And uh, so I was like, oh, I'm going to come to America, but I, I will end up, before I go back, I'll end up in Venice Beach. I'll end up in California. Uh, and, uh, and and wanting to work at at a gym. Little did I know that I'd end up uh, living, uh, you know, in the US. I've lived in uh, California now longer than I've lived in the UK. I came in '86. Now the story of music. There's this word, right? You know, in, in life called serendipity or serendipitous. And uh, my sister was a huge Prince fan. And I had this kind of like dead end job, right? And uh, and I was like, go to America, go to America, right? So my sister calls me up and she, she says, Prince is playing at Wembley Stadium. I want to go, will you come with me, right? We didn't even have tickets. So the time that the concert was going on was when I was meant to be going to work on the night shift, could I work the night shift? I think it was like, I don't know, show up at eight o'clock, you could go in there early and work till three o'clock in the morning or whatever it was. So I said, I'm gonna take my sister, and we're gonna go to Wembley Stadium. I came with a friend of mine uh, uh, that, that came with me, uh, uh, Paul Smith, came with me, uh, and I had heard during the same night the Prince was performing, uh, our friend Oakenfold was playing at the limelight with Daryl Pandy, uh, uh, Jack Mustafa, uh, Love Can't Turn Around. He was doing a PA that was also on Top of the Pops. And Top of the Pops was this seminal, it's like American bandstand. Uh, and, you know, this is where we were fed our kind of like uh, and turned on to all sorts of music. And I remember seeing that song and, and Daryl, you know, just killed it. And I was like, oh, we had it in the back of our mind that we were going to go to an after party, but we didn't really kind of like really plan it out that much. So we decided to go to Wembley Stadium and to go and see Prince without a ticket. <laughs> so uh, we arrived, we, we we understand that there were some scalpers who were selling some tickets for expensive, um, expensive fee. And we, uh, we didn't have the money to pay that, that fee, but we did notice a bunch of, uh, a bunch of uh, uh, lads that were talking about breaking in through the exit door. Uh, and there's that saying, right? Bum rush to show, literally. So these guys said, listen, this is what we're gonna do. It was about 25 of them. They're gonna, we're gonna run through that exit door and then we're gonna get to a certain point. You guys are gonna pay us a toll road fee or whatever, and we're gonna be in. And we're like, yeah. Let's see if this is going to happen. Some massive guy walks up to the gate, uh, to the exit door. There's a chain on it, and he pulls it reverse the opposite way. The doors fly open. We run in like a bunch of roaches, and we end up in the bottom of Wembley Stadium's boiler room. This guy puts his arm across, and he says, "Okay, everybody's going to pay me twenty pound." And some guy goes, "Chill up!" And everybody rushed. Well, as we ran. We came up to the floor of Wembley Stadium as the concert's going on, and we all run different ways. We all run different ways. 
security was running uh, and I had my sister who's a couple of years younger than me Anna and I saw two seats and I literally grabbed her hand and I ran and I jumped up on those seats with my sister my other friend Paul ran the other way I'd lost him and we stood up on those chairs and we we're like yeah like we've been here all night right so anyway Prince killed it rocked it we go over to when we go over to the line night see Paul great night Dale Pandy kills it, see a bunch of our friends. I have to go into work the next day, right? Next night, all of a sudden, I get this call when I'm on the floor with a forklift driving, moving pallets around, and uh, they call me into the office. And Mr. Lewis, come to the office. Go into the office. It's the shop steward that's, uh, you know, part of the union because it was a union job. And they all say... Mr. Lewis, we understand that you had somebody clock you off and that's an offense and you're fired. But because it's a union, if you want to keep your job, we will fight for you to stay here. And I'm, I was like, I'm not even 21 yet. This is a shit job. Why do I have to get a fight? Wait, what, am I allowed to say that on camera? Anyway, so. Too late. Too late. Security. Security. Right. So. Anyway, I get fired and I come to this conclusion in life that there's somebody that's telling me that you're going to America one way or another, right? So I call my sister and uh, I had a distant cousin that lived in uh, Memphis and California that I, I'd met. And they'd come to the house and they'd mentioned something about New York. I thought he lived in New York. So I told my sister, I said, I want to go to America. So she got me a one-way ticket to New York. And uh, I arrived at the uh, uh, Guardia Airport and I got a gray and I got the bus into 42nd Street. I made this phone call to my cousin Steve. I said, Steve, I made it. I'm here. He goes, what the hell are you doing here? I don't even live in New York. I live in California. Why didn't you tell anybody you're coming? I was like, I don't know. He goes, hold on one second. You have to call his aunt that lived in Queens. He goes, you've got to go downstairs and get in a cab and go to Queens and my aunt will take care of you for a certain time, blah, 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 blah. Where I'm going with all this is follow your dreams and follow your heart. But when I left New York, on the Greyhound bus and I came to California. When I came to LA, uh, lots of things had, had, had happened along the way. You know, I had this pass where you could actually get off. It was like a five day, you know, travel, green, uh, you know, like where you can get off the, uh, uh, the coach and get back on it. Anyway, cut, cut to the chase. Uh, I was loving, I was working out in gold. I decided in the summer shining, I was like, I think I found my home, you know, I really think I, I found it. But in order to stay, <laughs> you're going to need to work. You're going to need to get a job. And somewhere, somehow, prayers were answered. I always, uh, you know, would, would say this prayer, keep your saving point in the right direction. Did not know later on that I would be tested many years later on. Anyway, I get a job as a waiter. Worked at this place called the Baja Cantina in Marina del Rey. There's another DJ there called Moonpup. 
Moonpuck, if you're watching, love you, brother. And we were talking one afternoon on a quiet day. He was a mobile DJ. Uh, and I said, I've got these friends that DJs in, 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 in London, you know, there's Cole Parks and Wemfold and Ray Lark and Trevor Farm. And, you know, I go out and I dance and kind of know what's on the dance floor. And he said, well, I have a mobile DJ um, set up and I'm a mobile DJ and things are slow and I'm waiting tables and I play for the uh, other restaurant uh, um, for a group of people from the UK. Uh, Steve Levy, John Levy, and Jules Safaris that were going to Pepperdine College that's in, uh, in Malibu. And he says, sometimes they ask me to come and play and DJ. And uh, I was like, what is this? What is this, right? And he said, well, you know, I've got my equipment and stuff in storage. That's where I keep everything. When I do my gig, I take my little Volkswagen van, I load it up. And, and he said, you should, come, you should come over one afternoon. And... Uh, and I'll teach you how to DJ. And I was like looking through his records and my friend Ray Locke had sent me a tape and he said, this is the biggest thing going on in the UK. It's called Acid House. Tyree Cooper, this inner city, or you know, all these, you know, all these landmark uh, uh, songs. Well, when I was over in that locker and I was going through his records, I was like, there's the inner city, big fun. There's this, there's that. There's those records that were on that tape. So put the needle to the to the record, listen to this music, and uh, I was like, wow. Well, little did I know, my sister ended up coming to LA. She followed me a few years, a few years later on. Well, it wasn't even a few years. We had probably a couple of years, and. Uh, she decided she wasn't going home either. And she uh, she uh, she had a boyfriend uh, called Babe that was you know, uh, lived in, in Venice and he had two friends from Sweden, Klaus and I can't remember the other person. And my sister one afternoon said to me, she goes, uh, we're going to open a club. It's going to be called the Batcave and uh, I need a DJ. Do you think you can do it? I said, well, Moonpup's got the sound equipment. He's got the records. He's teaching me how to kind of like put, the, put the music together, which was blending. I wasn't really beat mixing, you know, because I hadn't got to that uh, uh, phase yet. And uh, we did this little club called the Batcave on Glencoe in Marina Del Rey. This is where I'm going with this. As I'm waiting tables, the accountant, son, who used to be like the maitre d', uh, at the weekends, he was going out with the owner's daughter of a, a, a club, a members only club called Tramps. And so it happens that they, the owner was selling it and he was selling it to uh, this Italian firm in the film business and they were going to take it over. And it so happens that they were looking for some DJs for their five nights that they were open for their private members club. Well, we took that, we got that job, me and Moonpa. I had three nights, he had three nights, and uh, and became a, a resident. I was a resident DJ at Batcave, and now I'm at Tramps. This is where life gets really interesting. So in private members club, they have the restaurant, and 
And of course, as we get into the interesting moment, <laughs> I think we lost his phone. Oh my God. This show also happens to find out that we get Wi-Fi issues and he's in the green room in Vegas. We hope we can get him back as the story gets interesting. Serendipity. It's funny what you wish for. As he said, he was making his way to New York, but yet he had projected on working out at Venice Beach. Needless to say, not too far down the road. Comes over to New York. Those are recapping and listening to Mark. Mark London Lewis's story. He steps to New York, doesn't call anyone. He seeks to his cousin Steve, if I remember correctly. And then his cousin says, I'm not living in New York. I live in California. And you got to get a Greyhound bus. Those that live in the UK never came to America to do the Greyhound bus to. From New York to, uh, let's just say, New York to Los Angeles. That's like seven or eight days. <laughs> we're going to make sure he's back. Hopefully he's okay. So we're going to recap and back with the man himself. So the cliffhanger is, as I'm waiting the table, we get these jobs as being DJs. I've got three nights at Tramps, private members club. Moon Pup has the other three nights. And the private members club is... As a membership, you can come in and have dinner and dance at the disco. And one night I'm in there on a Tuesday night. It's really a slow night. And uh, this girl walks up to me. Later on, I find out that this, this actress called Talisa Soto. And she asked me for, she goes, have you got that record? Nina Cherry, Buffalo Stance. That's a dog record. I wasn't really feeling it at the time. I didn't know how big this record was going to become. And I was like, nah, you know, I don't have it, right? All of a sudden, I'm in my DJ booth. And the cool thing about, you know, being a resident DJ, you know, and, you know, wherever you were and you played the club regularly, you would keep your records at the club, right? So you didn't have to carry them around, right? And, uh, and as such, she's asking me this question, I turn around and who and behold is standing in my DJ booth as I look down, going through my records. None other than the prince. And I look down and he looks up at me and I know who it is. And I said, is there anything you want, to, you want to hear? And he looks up at me with those eyes and he looks back, going through my records. Didn't say a word. I go, fuck. No one in the club. There's only me, Prince, and Talisa, and a bodyguard. Prince goes out the booth, goes to the back of the club. Bodyguard comes up and gives me a piece of vinyl. Well, I didn't know at the time this was an acetate. He says, Prince wants to hear track one. So I put the needle on the record, play track one. Bodyguard comes up, takes the acetate. Goes to the back of the club, play a few more songs, comes up and said, Prince wants to hear track four. Play track four. Bodyguard comes up afterwards, give me back the acetate. I don't know it's an acetate. I don't even know what the first thing is of why, what he was giving me. Bodyguard, I give him the, the acetate, goes like this to me, gives me a C note. They walk out of the club. 
and I literally do that WTF my sister ain't gonna believe this I get fired from that job for going to see Prince now I'm in the club as a DJ and Prince comes into the club and he's in the booth and I'm the first person to play bat dance to on an acetate that he just finished doing the album for for the Batman movie. When I find out what an acetate is, basically he just cut the lacquer and he came into the club because he wanted to hear what it sounded like in the club so he could make the adjustments because he was probably at the record plant or wherever he was you know, recording that album which is a seminal uh, recording studio. I don't know, don't quote me on that if it was a metal plant, but, and I go, when I see the movie, or I hear on the radio or MTV and he's doing the dance, the bad dance, I go, that's the song. My sister ain't gonna believe this. I tell her story, she said, can't believe it, but that was meant to happen. And God, G-O-D, put me in this path. Tell and me. I think, and I think it was me, but really, the seed was planted and I had many of these moments of, of music and I feel so blessed. <laughs> Only in LA you can do that. You can't do that in New York. They would never have done that. They would have taken the acetate and said, <laughs> But out there you listen and so you didn't get gobsmacked when you saw him just just your composure? Is that what happened? Yeah, I, I did because I tried to engage with him by saying like is there anything that you want to hear? And he kind of like looked up and then kind of looked away, didn't say anything. So I couldn't really, you know, like have any, plus the record of what I was playing was running out and I'm having this moment, I'm thinking, oh shit, I've got to change the record, right? So like I turn around and then he leaves and then I'm carrying playing, there's no one in the club, you know, and in the club just them because it was like this metal thing. And then this whole exchange happened with the bodyguard, you know? And uh, and that was my second residency. And at the time, Moonpup told me, he said, you have these clubs that you're playing at and you need to belong to a record pool. And I was like, yeah, what is a record pool? He said, well, a record majors. What is a record pool? Yeah, yeah. This was Randy Seals. Resource record pool, rest his soul, Rick Scalante. And I went in, Moon Pop said, hey, this is Mark, he's playing at his clubs. So, you know, he wants to join the record pool, he needs records, you know, and you pay a fee and then you, you have to fill out your reactions of the records, the promos that the, the majors and the indies were giving us. And uh, another stroke of luck, it wasn't a stroke of luck, it was, I was being blessed. Rick, that was a friend of Randy's, that Rick used to live in Dallas and played at this, uh, this, this club, the Stark Club, had left Dallas to come to be with his uh, friend Randy, work at the record pool in, in, in Los Angeles and West Hollywood. And Rick was going to the majors. He was going to work for the head of dance music A&R at Virgin Records. And he says, Mark, I think you should take this job. I'm, and Randy was like, hey, do you want this job? And I was just like, 
sure, like I could do this, right? And he was like, yeah, this is going to be good for you. Well, later on, because of Rick going to be a head of A&R of a Virgin, he, and he was still living in Los Angeles, we became good friends, uh, you know, Virgin had went on to, you know, Soul to Soul and Frankie Knuckles and so many other, you know, amazing uh, uh, landmark music uh, legends. Uh, he said, well, you're playing all these nights. You should be a billboard reporter. And uh, I said, what's that? He goes, well, you need to be playing at least three or four nights and uh, I can put a good word in for you and, and, uh, uh, and you should be a billboard reporter and this is what you're going to do and I made the introduction and now I'm a billboard reporter. I'm working, I'm living in Los Angeles. I'm DJing, I'm at Resource Record Pool. Moon Puppy introduced me to, to, to this all. It was a new music seminar. They said, we're going to fly you out to this to to New York to meet the labels uh, and you know we used to give these uh, you know we used to do the, the 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 top fifty dance chart one of twenty five or thirty five DJs and was getting all this these promos and this music and I was meeting you know having these phone calls with you know the Leslie Dawes and Peter Abatelli's and Frank Serrato and you know and, 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 and you know and so many others. Uh, hang on, hang on, hang on. Let me explain to everyone what that means, what he's talking about, these phone calls. So there's a Billboard Club chart, okay, everybody? So there'd be records that each record label promoter is working. They would need him, being a bill reporter from L.A., to chart these records. And they would harass him nicely. Hi, Mark. It's Frank. Can you put my record this week? And he'd have to sit there, and, and if he didn't like playing it, he'd have to kind of somehow help out in a nice way. It was a way of control. Well put. Well put. Hey, this is Bobby Shaw. This oh, is Bobby Shaw, man. Clear on that. Bobby's very clear how he wanted his records to be placed. <laughs> That's, that's Bobby Shaw. <laughs> and in those days, when you held rank on Billboard and you had the clubs, that would help records. And then in turn, you would get remixes and things would would pop off from that. There'd be other business that came along. So it was in your best interest. Yes. Larry, Larry Flick then to, you oh, know, Ricardo. Take over, my friend. Yeah, Larry Flick, and then uh, you know, turn over to Ricardo, and you know, once I came to the New Music Seminar, and I met, you know, uh, you know, Leslie introduced me to. I remember I would come to to that uh, to New York for that New Music Seminar, and she would say, you know, you've been, uh, you know, you've been brought into this family of you know of, of, of music, and she we she got a. Uh, uh, a cargo van and I think Ted Patterson that drove that cargo van and we went to see Tony Humphreys at Zanzibar in New Jersey Leslie gave us this trick and I remember this it's clear as day uh, when Tony was playing this music and at the, by, at the end of the night there was a handful of people I think Danny Tenegla me uh, um, my friend Ian Paul was there and uh, uh, Danny Ramplin uh, and a couple of other people were just dancing out, and Tony would just wear us out with this music. 
and a selection of, of, of what he was playing. I was like, wow, this is how you program. I mean, mind you, by then, you know, Leslie was already giving us these mixtapes that, you know, Tony was, you know, was, was playing. And uh, well, you experience it, you do not understand what that means, right? Yeah, yeah. Do not, it's like going to church. It's a different experience. The sound system, you know, like New York was, was the king of clubs, you know, going to, you know, going to the sound factory. Frankie was there, you know, and, and, and Danny was at the, the building and, uh, you know, all these uh, other things, you know, and the, the, the tunnel and all these clubs were going on. And you always knew how serious the clubs were in New York because they'd have a restroom in there. The DJs would play such long sets. They had their own uh, Shangri-La restroom and their records that were you know both behind them their residency the sound system the lights the programming you know that means the goal never you know now that doesn't you know doesn't exist but i knew i was being uh, put in uh, you know that i was in you know being treated to this you know musical royalty and legacy uh, of things that i could only you know didn't uh, you know under understand other than you know going back to, you know, soul music and R&B and, and, and disco and and then now house music and record labels and what they, you know, and, and, and A&R. And, and then later on, you know, the the majors, uh, they would say, hey, you know, there's an opportunity, you know, you, you should remix, you know, there's an opportunity for you to maybe remix, do a remix. And, uh, I was like, wow, that sounds interesting. Well, well I'm, not, I'm not an engineer, I'm not a music producer. I was like, who do I surround myself with, you know? Then yet again, being in Vegas with my friend with this renewable energy convention, Byron Delia has this studio. He calls me, he, you know, he was listening to my, my street cred uh, in Los Angeles and uh, these promoters that he was friends with said, hey, you know, Mark's you know, got this opportunity to remix, he's playing the clubs, that he's playing everywhere, you know, in the 90s, it was like, you know, hot shit, right? So I go to his studio and uh, he was he was doing his own album and he said, hey, I heard you was, you know, in the music business and I'm looking for a remix. I heard that I should remix, uh, you know, one of my songs uh, and uh, how much is that going to cost me? I think I'm at the time I might say like five grand, but what? You can't be getting paid that money to do a remix in the early 90s. And I was like, that's my food, buddy, you know? And he was just like, we struck up a friendship. I didn't, you know, and he was like, look at my studio. I'll help you. Do, you know, we got sequential circuits, keyboards. We got this, 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 this drum machine. We got this, this, this. We got a trident deck. We all analog. Let me teach you a thing or two and uh, about music, and I can be your, you know, I can be your your partner in this, and you can take on some more remixes like Miami Sound Machine or Ace of Bass or you know Chaka Khan or Rajor or Tribal, you know Mike Oldfield, et cetera, et cetera. And this is how I cut my teeth. This is how you know I got into the game and had those relationships with the majors and being a billboard reporter and playing the club scene and uh, the whole rave museum, a legacy of, uh, of dance music was, uh, 
being gifted <laughs> to totally. me. Totally. You know, it's funny. It's like they say stepping into knee-high doo-doo. You, right. you went in full up to your neck. Rocked in the deep end. Totally. But you're also in L.A. And L.A. Yeah. has that movie star La La Land quality to it, you know, where things do move fast. And as you become a name player in the game, and you're sought after, people love success, and success breeds more success. You know what I'm saying? And of course, you are a very good DJ, there's no doubt. You know, even though if you blag your way through it, at first, yeah. you created you created the, like everyone does, you created the experience of coming to hear more. You know, and people open those doors. And the and 90s come through and you're doing these remixes. And, and we noticed you did take on the harder sound, the more longer progressive house now, where some of the soulful stuff you may have started with kind of went behind you. But I do remember that you were playing a bit tougher as the yeah. went on. What, what was the change for you? Because you were very vocal, and I do remember hearing you, and then it just kind of changed. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I kind of would. Yeah, I, I use this word uh, very lightly. Uh, it's called a dichotomy, and you know, as much as the the black urban side of me was into the the disco and the soul, there was something other driving me that was this European. Uh, uh, a sound of progressive, progressive house or the progression of house or that, you know, I like Tangerine Dream, I liked, uh, you know, Emerson Lake Palmer, I liked, uh, you know, rock, I liked all these other different influences of the 90s, the synths, you know, the, uh, the, the, the from the simple minds to, you know, to all these, you know, as, as you know, the Gary Newman's and I kind of heard that it was, you know, I was like listening to the, the music programming of, of simps and top lines and different, uh, you know, different rhythm sections and bass lines and, you know, the, the records that would be impressed, uh, you know, uh, and the music producers, uh, uh, that were, were, the music was coming out of Europe. I was being turned on and I was like, if I am programming, I remember, you know, the, the residency at Truth at Park Plaza and everyone's playing, you know, techno, you know, stuff on Music Man and, you know, Jerry, Jerry Beltrami, Energy Flash. And I was understanding that I could program. Plus, I was being, you know, being a billboard reporter and being at Record Pool, I was getting all these promos, right? So I remember, like, everything was being played and still uh, at this, uh, it just came out with crazy. And I remember, I'm going to change the mood in the club right now. You can, I'm just coming off off another DJ who's like banging it out. And I put on Crazy, there's a down tempo uh, track by Seal. And uh, everybody was like, wow, you know? So, yeah, my music tastes uh, were, were, were all over the place. And, you know, and sometimes, uh, you know, I was like chasing different, different sounds. But, and, and I was having a lot of fun doing it and just understanding that I was just learning how to, you know, program and mix and blend and EQ. And uh, yeah, so there was a definitely a, a, a tougher side. But I think at the time, 
lots of DJs were playing music that was a lot faster. Now I'm trying to play stuff at 116, 118, 122, where we was playing before. You know, you're playing in big spaces, making music move. The music was a lot more, you know, progressive in the, the true sense of the word. And it was like, you know, 130, 132, 135, 140, you know, whatever it, 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 it was. And that's kind of what, what, what was driving me, you know, and allowed me to later on go to you know, play certain clubs, uh, you know, on, you know around, around the globe that I made many mixed compilations that were a lot more progressive than, you know, when I, I look See back at yeah. 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 I was saying, you go right back yeah. to it. Oh my God. Yeah. When you think about it, right? When you really sit yeah. and think, you go, yeah. what I started with and what I went through the most of your career with, is a bit of a harder sound, which is fine. I saw Carl Cox change. I mean, he went to his full techno. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's a soul boy. Went full techno. So, of course, it goes with it goes with the, the times. Before I ask you this other question, I want to ask you, to the 90s into the 2000s, what's the highlight for you? Your best moment, your highlight. What is the best moment for you in this music thing? That you would say? I, I mean, I, I think the highlight was just understanding that I, you know, from that I could eventually, uh, you know, I, I knew that it was this transition when I was playing that I, w I could leave waiting tables and that I could do this professionally or I could do this full time. And that I was going to become this 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 DJ. And I mean, I was would never say that word back then. But so I think the highlight was really the, the transition of being able to be able to live the dream and say living in in, in California in in LA and having you know growing friendships and relationships and, and industries. And I, I don't think you know. I mean, yeah, I could say, oh, is the the millennium. Uh, in, in playing in Malaysia, nineteen ninety nine, playing for a hundred thousand people, but you know, I always think now, <laughs> now over you know thirty years of, of playing, I wish I had a time machine that I could go back to all those clubs and all those places I played, and now be able to mix and program. And and, and and do what I can do now back then. Because, you know, I mean, can't sometimes, I, sometimes, I, sometimes I didn't quite clear the dance floor. Or maybe, you know, the, it was, you know, it was always, you know, the peaks and, and, and the highs of, of, you know, of DJing, Listen, you know, set, you know. Can't tell a great football player on Monday what he didn't do on Saturday night when right. he didn't score. You can't go back. You got to do the best you can. Of yeah. course, I wish I had a time machine for the golden era. <laughs> but with all well, my... hey, in, with AI, we might be able to do that. You know, <laughs> it'd be like this, um, you know, hot wire, you know, remote control, a secret. Uh, Len Lenny, you are, you know, this show is amazing that you get to, you know, get this out out of, uh, you know. I want to get something else out of you. Yeah, but you know, you know what really sucks is that I plugged in my my power pack into my phone. It's coming up low, low, low battery. Wouldn't it be um, having an interview? What are you looking for? I'm looking for a cable to go into my phone to my battery uh, to my. We're gonna lose uh, you. 
I, I, I mean, I don't want to keep touching the screen to see how much the percentage Holy of crap. Oh, I, I my God, ask, it's crazy, you know? I need to ask this question. Part two. No, no, no. We need to ask the question. I've been waiting to ask this question. Yeah. How did you find God? Oh, my Come on, baby. Yeah, Hang on, before I go any further, I had to ask Morales the same question what happened to him in Japan. I'm going to ask you the same question. How did you find G.O.D.? Because this is where you really found him. Yeah, well, many years later on in life, uh, being this <laughs> skinny black kid with uh, insecurities and Later on in life, uh, you know, uh, ego and addiction took me down this this path where I wasn't loving myself. I wasn't caring about other people. I was just, you know, I was just not being a good person, you know. And maybe that reflected on my music and what I was chasing wasn't really what I was what I was being gifted. And I didn't have the gratitude and I didn't have, uh, I didn't really honor and, and cherish what had been given to me. And, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I made some very bad decisions that later on, you know, put me, uh, put me in harm's way and, and, and evil that I was, you know, w w was set up uh, because, you know, I, and, and, one thing that I, I got to reconcile and, and repent is that no one else did this to me. I did this to myself. And uh, it took me being, you know, being locked away, uh, many miles away, uh, uh, that I came to a point in my life was the lowest point in my life when I had all these high, and, 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 and tribulations of these gifts that I was flushing it all down the pan and now I was in a serious situation that you know I was looking at five to ten and I didn't know if I, I was going to come out of it well before but, before you take the five and ten because nickel and diamond bags it sounds like but no, that's five to ten years. In, I know, I know. In military sense. <laughs> exactly, would give us like a bird's eye from an outsider. What exactly happened? You know, if you if you were looking at this, well, you know, know. It, it's 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 like a it's like a movie out of you know seen at a nip tuck where you know there's two narcissistic twin brothers that you know have all the money in the world. They have their addiction. You know, I was became a pawn. Uh, in, 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 you know, a cog in the wheel of, of that. You know, they uh, when you fall on hard times, and you ask for something uh, from somebody that they will one day ask the favor back in a different form, and you'll have this, and you'll be obligated. And the obligation got me to be on a plane. Uh, you know, in, 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 in Asia where the guy's wife told uh, uh, the authorities that I was coming to make this delivery and I won't go into 
what it is and how it is because of, you know, it's the internet and, you know, even though the statute of limitations has, has passed, there's, you know, I said, you know, kids and, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, building my, building my careers under, uh, you know, uh, a new identity and a new name, which, uh, and I won't kind of like go too deep into that because it's kind of like more negative. And if I run out of uh, so basically, information on the phone, so uh, basically, the yeah. basically, it was more like you were set up for what was the kill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, uh, yeah, I was set up. Uh, uh, you know, the police met me at the uh, the airport when I touched down, and uh, and uh, they decided to build a case against me, and uh, and. Uh, it decided to put me uh, under trial, and uh, you know that was a very difficult thing to you know to go through to put my family through and, and friends and people that cared about me and, and loved ones. Was like, how did you get to this point? Well, I, as I said, you know, my ego and uh, and, and, and addiction, uh, you know, took me down that slippery slope that was uh, I had no idea what I stacked up against my, myself that what I was doing, but when I did reach out and I, I did that cry and, and said, please help me, show me the way how to do this. I felt the Holy Spirit come and get, uh, you know, and said, we got you. Because you asked, you have. And and then I learned about faith. And uh, and every day I got stronger. And the good book and, and G.O.D., you know, things would come through. Uh, and speak to me, you know, I remember the first verse. And I remember, you know, seven is a very powerful number because uh, a friend of mine told me that. And uh, I remember the first verse. Matthew chapter seven, verse seven. Ask, seek, knock. Ask and you will receive it. Knock, the door will be open for you. Seek and you will find it. Ask, seek, knock. And uh, I remember going further, I just memorized the verse, you know, like, and it became a mantra and I wanted to know more and learn more and, you know, and it was keeping me strong while I was so vulnerable. Uh, and, you know, as I said, lots of love and prayers. My sister, it was like David and Goliath, you know, and people called me back. How long were you locked up where you were? Oh, 23 hours a day. Uh, probably did about close to, you know, close to 10 months that was away. And, uh, and, uh, and as I said, going back to that Greyhound experience, uh, you know, one I would say, keep me safe, point me in the right direction. That was the only prayer that I would say. When I had the whole dialogue with uh, G.O.D. and, you know, and then, you know, of course it was, you know, I was detoxing and all the rest of it and, you know, my, the, the, my clarity and, you know, what I was, you know, and, and all, the, all the wrongs of repenting and stuff. He said, G.O.D. said to me, remember, everything you asked for, I gave you. Did you not ask for being pointed in the right direction? Did I not give that to you? And I said, yeah. Did you not ask for two healthy children? I said, I said, yeah. Did I said his prayer? Uh, break me from the bondage of these four walls and guide me a safe passage back to the arms of my loved ones. When I got to back to Los Angeles and hugged my sister and my niece and cried, and uh, G.O.D. went and said, did I not bring you, did, did, did I not deliver you from evil? How are you not going to make a covenant with me? 
stay on the path. These are gifts. I'm giving you a second chance. And that's how I turned my life around. And, so you uh, haven't touched anything, right, since that point? Nothing? Clean? No, well, I mean, I drink, you know, I drink alcohol. No, I mean, you know, I mean talking yeah. to heavy narcotics. No, yeah, exactly. No, that's not, not my thing anymore. And, uh, and, you know, it took, you know, this is where life is, is where, where it takes you, you know. Like, when I got to go back to uh, the UK, because, uh, you know, I was deported from there to go back to the UK, I got to spend, you know, three weeks with, with my mum that was very ill at the time. Uh, I got back in 2017 and she later passed uh, early um, January in 2018. And I had no idea that that was the last time that I'd actually be able to spend and have a cup of tea with my mum or take her to the library or whatever you know, make her a meal or, or whatever, you know. And uh, and then, you know, once she passed, I mean, we got the call and we went to the hospital and, you know, she was, you know, expiring, as they as they call it, and we weren't going to be able to save her. And I was like, God took me from there, put me there to be able to have this, you know, have this time, uh, time with mum. And each time, you know, I got stronger of just understanding that these gifts and these whispers and uh you know the this gratitude of, of faith and, and love was going to be able to do that and i remember at the time before the if, the, if we get cut offline i had to be there for six weeks in the uk and i remember i saw like and i was like going crazy couldn't can put rest uh, put mum to rest for six weeks and i saw doc martin uh so Doc Martin was coming to the UK, so I reached out to him and he said, yeah, I heard you, you know, you're there for your mum and all the rest of it. He goes, I'm coming to the UK, he goes, you're coming out. And, uh, and our good friend, uh, uh, Alexia, uh, and he said, uh, I'm playing at this club and Tony Humphreys is playing at Fabric for Hard Times and we're going to go out. Because I used to play there, we're on the list, we're coming. And I remember, you know, having this night out with, with Doc and seeing Danny Rad playing and Juan Atkins and Tony and, you know, and, and, and Doc and Alexia. And it was like going back to, it was like church, what Tony was playing, what he was programming, you know? And I was just like, whoa, Mark Lewis has gone back to the underground. He's from London. He's gone back to London. I am London, Mark London same initial and uh, and, that, and, that, and and so and i asked god he said it was good i asked carl i asked paul i asked and my mom you know and and everybody said yeah it feels if it feels right do it so that's how the name change happened from that moment in 2018 when i when i, when I came back and uh, and i was like you know this is this is who i am when i didn't even want sometimes want to speak to people i don't even say mark just say london yeah, and uh, so I've got to go back to my roots. I've got to go back to my roots with the music, the house music. I've got to go back to my underground. I've got to go back, and it all kind of like made 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 sense. And that's kind of like how I got to button it up. And that's and everyone's that's what I'm talking about. You know how everybody loves a great comeback, and you've really shown that you came back from the depths of darkness. <laughs> Really, 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 yeah, yeah, 
and you know, and, yeah, and there's lots of other, you know, and and all we all can do. And, and thank you for getting that out and being able for me to, to share it. And and, and all you we did, can do you is share it like a trooper. Now, the yeah. questions I have is, and this is what I'm gonna this is what I'm gonna ask because we've all been in those moments where things look really in disparity, in the real disparity. When you're in the middle of of waiting for a trial. Did you think you were ever going to get back to America or England, or you thought that was it when you were in that in that box? Well, I got stronger, and uh, as the trial uh, got closer, um, and you know, my family uh, were, were came up for Christmas to 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 see part of the trial, um, uh, that things looked uh, more hopeful. Um, than they did in the beginning because the worst thing is not knowing where you know where it's going to end up. Can you survive? Can you live? You know, are you going to get get through this? What is it? But they really, you know, prayer and 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 love. You know, the whole thing. You know, love is the message. Is is a real a dialogue a dialogue for for me. Maybe really clear. People bought me. Yo. People helped bring me back. Yo, you're a lucky son of a bitch. Oh yeah, uh, very. I mean, I'm gonna put a prayer like this, like the cross, to you because not many get to tell that story on the other side. Hundred percent. I felt like you know what we was up against with their three three lawyers was was like David and Goliath, and you know because I got so strong into my faith and and everything else, and and uh, I remember going to a, a, a industry event. And people looked at me like Jesus had rose from the dead, or like they were like, "How are you here? You lucky son of a gun. We thought you were gonna die there, you know." When I, mean? I, I heard, yeah. when I heard, because you always hear the worst of these stories, you never hear the good. This is one of those where it's actually a positive ending. Thank God. But wow, I'm still blown away here. Yeah. So you know, the the main thing for me was that as my faith got stronger. And I, I, when I got back, I, I, I realized I was like, I still have this uh, relationship, this communication. It wasn't like prayer, like, uh, you know, our father. It was like, what do you want me to do out of it? And, and one morning, you know, it, it became so strong. Geo just said, I allow you to open your eyes in the morning. Go and speak my truth and my words. And love is the message and turn it be the love turn it up to 11 and embrace and talk about it and have the clarity to be have convi conviction with your covenant and and people go well you 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 got a good point wow you know like you know we you know it might might be different for for me or what you're going through but for you know you have some recourse. How do you know it works? How do you know it, 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 it? And I say, it's the truth. It says it right there. You have not because you ask not, right? And there can be many, many quotes from scripture. And uh, and I do the work. I, I still do the work. I have my Bible app. I listen to, you know, I listen to my uh, my pastor and sermon. And uh, you know, when I when I need to tap in, I listen. And it puts me a picture on the path, you know? And that's important because you had strong faith and thou shalt ask, thou shalt receive, but you got to put the work in. That's yeah. for sure. 
Are, yeah. so, are you, your mom being Jewish, were you raised Jewish or were you raised? Well, no, no, my, you know, because my, my dad, my, we, you know, that was never, you know, uh, put upon me. And I remember telling my mom and I would send her these sermons. She goes, you know, you're Jewish, right? You're trying to convert me to being Christian. And I was so <laughs> Jewish, you know what I mean? And so we would just laugh, you know, but she was just so happy that we, you know, got to, you know, have some okay. you know, quality time. So what's the humbling experience? Because I see such a heartfelt person, not a cocky ass English boy who's got a tan from LA no more. I hear a very softer, older, more well-rounded person. Where is where are we at in our lives now after this? I, I, I'm so, I, you know, I go to sleep at night and I, I, I'm blessed, you know, I feel good, I'm at peace, you know. If it all, you know, ends tomorrow and I don't wake up, you know, I think to myself, I had a beautiful life. I've traveled around the world, you know, I, you know, I have amazing friends and, and relationships and I'm growing uh, and, you know, I've kind of got my groove back and uh, I'm just kind of like, uh, you know, at peace and, uh, and, I, and I feel good and I, I want to want to share that. And as I said, while I'm being kept uh, you know, kept down here on this physical plane. There's a lot of work to do. You know, we look at the world we live in uh, now. You know, you know what we do is, you know, uh, DJs and showmen, and uh, you know, you, we really need to, you know, in, you know, embrace that. It's an um, everybody goes, oh yeah, you know, it's all about love on the dance floor. You know, don't, 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 don't keep going on about that. But no, there's a lot of lost people. There's a lot of darkness. There's a lot of uncertainty. You know, look what we just came through from the pandemic. You know, one pandemic, and look how many people going out to festivals and clubs and games that they they go, oh, I didn't do that on the bucket list. I didn't go Burning Man. I didn't go to Visa. I didn't go there. I didn't go that. I didn't tell anybody that. How are you doing? How are you feeling with you know your mental health or how you know? Can I get you anything? I, you know, I love you. Feeling the hug being sincere and all that stuff you know that goes a long way that's a long way yeah. yeah. and you and you are now our poster child for turning things around you know i have to say man. you know everybody has a muse and these are the kind of stories that are heartfelt i mean we all love the golden stuff we love the success. yeah 100% and hold the chalice and the and the fire champions and we we've done it we we've made it but nobody talks about when the music shuts off when the loneliness comes into play when the drugs and the alcohol take over because you're depressed maybe because musically or economically things are not right like you said getting desperate situations and you're not thinking with clarity and we make sometimes mistakes that are costly and some of us are not lucky enough to always come back from yeah i mean then i guess this is the first public interview on trial stories that i've actually been able to be you know open and uh, and, and and direct and it's, it's just really like and exclusive. I mean, there were media outlets that said, "Oh, we would take you, your story," and I would have to be so careful of like now it's been you know over over five years statute of limitations and stuff like that. But I don't take anything for granted, and you know, I'm more humble and 
and just treading really lightly and you know can't be you know, too cocky or, or, or arrogant to that ego when you hear it rise you go like that's not me speaking that's not who i am that's that's what got you into trouble trouble before or you know you're out with the lads and you go you know that's maybe that's wrong maybe that's the wrong point of view or you know like just being brave and strong enough and saying dang so you know what i mean and uh yeah this is a show where i do the listening and let you do the talking and guide you because we don't want to put words in your mouth we want to hear it from you and no one can paint this better than you right and you said something i'm glad you said it your ego took over then you let the ego play a bigger part to control you than you controlling you in other words you just let the ego 100 100 percent. that that really I didn't know it at the time. It took Geo did go time out. Who do you think you are? Did you figure that? I didn't even know they didn't have the death penalty. You know, I mean, I, I remember going to a festival. Didn't even know the guy. He was there with his two daughters. He was crying. You know, we were so worried about you. We prayed for you. You know, and I, I was just like, I said, being humble. I was like, I'm so sorry that I, you know, I put you through that and 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 all this. And I didn't even really know the person i was just like you know this the prayers and 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 angels and there was a lot of light there was a lot of you know my sister and everybody fought for, for you know fought for me to, to 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 bring me back how was i gonna mess this up again or or not you know to care about you know what what, what i put, put through and 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 that's what keeps me keeps me on the path you know, even if even if things did get desperate uh, uh, again, or money ain't gonna happen because I know you know there'll always be there'll always be a way, and you know faith guides me. So yeah, but we're learning I'm, from I'm you. Blessed. <laughs> we're learning from you that telepathically you have the you have the phone direct to the God. You just ask, <laughs> and he brings it right to you. Maybe not the way you would like it, but you do get it. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I'm just so you know, so thankful, and so blessed every day. So I don't, I don't know where we where we go go from here, but I think it all leads to another uh, yeah, another another story, part part two. We have you going to the 60th plus, so we'll catch yeah. up with you soon again. But this yeah. is so heartfelt. I want to leave it right here. Yeah, and yeah, I want to leave it. But love, 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 and radiance right now. Yeah. One last thing I want to ask, and then you can say au revoir, salute, ciao, and goodbye to everybody. Would you do it over again? The whole thing? Stroke Would the stroke? The whole oh. coming to America? Would you do it all over again? Uh, yeah, 100%. I, I mean, I, 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 as I said, I've lived in longer than I've lived in the UK now. And uh, being able to get to do some music and whatever the new horizons are, and uh, you know, I, uh, my 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 life companion and uh, my my spiritual partner, uh, ever, you know, I say, listen, we're working on these deals, and all this stuff's gonna happen. And if you write me out a check with all those seven uh, digits, and I never have to touch, and, and I never play music again, 
she goes, you're such a fucking liar. You, you, you never want to stop playing. You, you know, always, you, you just have the money and then you create clubs and DJs and, you know, your legacy of your academy and everything else. So, yeah, I mean, would I go and live in a different state or would I think about a different country or would I think about... Because when all that stuff was happening, I didn't even understand that. They, I, I didn't think there were challenges. I think it was like, wait, well, go get a job. I went tables. I was a humble and I was like, Hey, there's music, there's this, this, and that. You know, could I do it again? Yeah, you know, and uh, I do think about what's what's next or, you know, where, where the next destination is. And and as I said, we have these stories and, you know, now I'm kind of more into, you know, do, doing some, you know, uh, you know docu-series and, you know, storylines and legacies and metaverses and rave culture, you know, museum and stuff like that. So there's a lot of great projects that, that, that keep, that keep coming. And one thing I do know is that I'm still being given the gifts and still being the vessel. I'm hearing the whispers because I'm open. And, and so like when it, when it comes, I, you know, I receive and I say, thank you. And, you know, and people understand that, that, that conviction, they, they know, they, they, they feel that, they feel that energy, you know? And I remember when I was like trying to be, you know, marketing director for this new media company and then and, and had all this money attached to it and GOD goes, are you crazy? I'm not going to give you this. They, you might not even deliver. You'll be on a plane fucking party and you might probably be dead six feet under somewhere. You know what I mean? No. And so that's now when I listen to it, like now I'm feeling ready. What would you do with it if you had it? You know? Gotta get back. Now you want what, what's your legacy? Now you gotta yeah. work out now. You gotta work yeah. hard. Now, now we got now we got millions of DJs and million and the music business isn't the same and there's AI and streaming and you know it's like but you know the truth is on the dance floor. Love is the message, you know. When there's music and you're having that that, that experience, it, it can't be taken away and nothing can be sure, taken away. Sure why. That's why we do it. Just <laughs> there, you go. Look at him in his best. Look, 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 everybody. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. You do it for the Grammys. You do it. Yeah, yeah. And he used to carry his records from from city to city, titty to titty. Look at him. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, now I've got some memorabilia, and now I've got some memoirs, and now we're coming after, going after the the, the the real rewards, which is you know just look at him. Know, stay, staying true. Not bad from humble beginnings in South London where we were doing construction and, you know, we were just, you know, being on the dance floor to, you know, like hanging out and then and, and now leaving the legacy. So I'm feeling blessed. And, and Lenny, thank you for bringing out, the, you know, bringing out this story in the best of and, and we, we will do it again. And... Uh, what can I say? Not just yeah, say. We, we, we can't think the best. We can only wish you the best. Mm. You know, we are, we are in our prayers to do not jump, do not fall off that wagon. Stay on that wagon, baby. Come on now. I will, I will for sure. All Don't right. Us, let me just say this to everybody. In two weeks, on the 27th of September, another Londoner, Simon Dunmore. Oh, wow. That's comes great. and tells his story. Now I'm retired from defective records, but the man behind all those massive hits, Glitterbox and all, September 27. Tune in.
You're going to come in here, Mr. Dunmore. And as for me, I'm Lenny Fontana coming out of New York City from Trust Stories. We want to thank Mark London Lewis for a fabulous, fabulous story. And we can't thank you and wish all the best. Thank you for being a good, great curator and narrator and and uh, and creating this this show. And there's lots of stuff that is learned from you know, uh, like tuning in. I am a fan. I've listened to many. Uh, uh, you know, we've in, learned a lot about you. Yeah, <laughs> we learned a lot about myself today. <laughs> we we actually had a session of of penance and and in purgatory all wrapped up in one right here. It's great, yeah. amazing. Yeah. Well, well, we're staying in contact for when you're coming out in October. And, yeah, yeah, we'll be uh, we'll, we'll, we'll make some reunion happen. Thank you, Shari, for uh, you know keeping. And that, everyone, is the reason why we say it came back. Oh, we, we lost you. We came back. <laughs> I was going to say good night yeah. to everyone in the UK that follows. Stay on Mark. Send him your love. Send him your best. Tell him do not mess up. Keep doing what you do. And again, Mr. Lewis. Ta-ta for now. See you all next week. Cheers, everyone.